0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Helen Startup and Dr. Nikki Gilbert. Helen is a teacher and trainer of schema therapy at the Schema Therapy School UK and provides workshops. She has also co-authored a schema therapy book and has experience of working in both the NHS and private sector as a consultant psychologist in eating disorders. Nikki is a consultant clinical psychologist who works as a clinical supervisor and provides eating disorder therapy. Nikki has personal experience of receiving schema therapy which commenced her love of schema therapy. Helen and Nikki join me today to discuss the methods behind schema therapy, how it works from both a clinical perspective and personal perspective. Hello Helen and Nikki. Hi Hannah.
1: Hi, Thanks Hannah. so much for inviting us. It's so good to be No, here. it's
0: really exciting. It's lovely to have two people to chat to as well. Um it's always so nice the more faces. I, I've only done I don't know how many I've done with two people now. Um, but it's always really exciting to get loads of different um, viewpoints on on different things. So thank you both for joining me. Oh,
2: thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's lovely
0: to have a little gang. <laughs> and lovely to have you back, Nikki. I know. I
2: liked
0: it so much. I <laughs> Absolutely. Number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So obviously, like you're both here to talk about schema therapy today. Um, And for some listeners, schema therapy might be a completely brand new um, area of therapy or for some, it might be something they've heard of before. So I guess if we were to set the scene, would you mind giving us a bit of an overview of what schema therapy is?
1: Yeah, sure. I'll do my best. It's sort of remarkably tricky <laughs> putting these things into a into few words. But um so schema therapy um, is a psychological therapy um, and it's based on an integrative model of the self. Uh, and what we kind of mean by that is that it's been influenced by many kind of core theories, really. And many of these have been around for a very long time. And kind of most psychological therapies are sort of based on them one way or another perhaps the main influences that really stand out to me um, are the attachment literature and our knowledge there, um, our understanding, really, that relationships are absolutely core, and that the relationships that we had earlier in life form the foundations for what we expect in our relationships as adults. Um, but also other ways of thinking. So for example, emotion-focused th- therapy has, has contributed heavily. So um, this is the idea that, you know, it's not sufficient really just to get something at a head level or even to change behaviorally, that actually a kind of important depth to healing comes from shifts that are at an emotional level. And another, I think, core and really significant influences, a sort of gestalt way of seeing the self as being made up of uh, part selves. And I love this way of of viewing things. And, and we're all made up of part selves. Um, and um, it enables us, I don't know if you ever have that sort of um, sense of, you know, one part of yourself being in the driving seat and other parts mm-hmm. of the self maybe not being so available. And I find it a really sort of lovely way of helping people to understand how you know, sometimes one of the goals of of working is simply to get the self to communicate better with different sides of the self and to bolster different parts of the self. So, you know, schema therapy was developed by Jeffrey Young. Um, It's in its full form. It could be quite a long-term therapy, so 18 months or longer, but it's also briefer models are being developed um, all the time. And, you know, it's been influenced by many different models, as I say. Um, and in terms of the kind of core change processes, really, I suppose I would say it's that the therapeutic relationship's at the heart. It's not just important, but it's an actual vehicle by which people get well. Um, that it there's a shared formulation. So it's not just an understanding that's in the therapist's head or is inferred. It's collaboratively devised. It's uh, a coming together of ideas uh, and it's mapped out and that many of the ways of working are based on things like imagery techniques, things like chair work, emotion focused techniques as a routine to trying to support people. And the very final thing that I really do love about schema therapy and want to mention is the concept of the healthy adult, which I think is is so sort of significant in, in so far as, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking in mental health about parts of us, and we all have them that don't work optimally to help us get our needs met, and about change and the process of change. But one of the things about the healthy adult is, is about a bolstering a side to ourselves that's got our back, that's on our sides, that can look on at the rest of us and can help us out. And we spend a lot of time in schema therapy, helping people to have uh, a real resilience and a strength in this side that we think of as a bit of an organiser or as a healthy adult. Um, so yeah, that's my kind of sort of brief summary, really, of, of, of what stands out in schema therapy for me. And yeah.
2: that healthy adult side is, is one of my favourite bits of the model as well. And I think um, it uh, it's something I always have in mind now, like, through, even, even when I'm not delivering schema therapy, if I'm delivering any other therapy, I think of that as a lovely kind of mode and my um, nice sense of believing that we've all got that healthy adult part. It might be really depleted at different points, it might have been mm-hmm. quite flattened and maybe a bit missing and certainly when I have been at my most depleted and um, my healthy adult um, I don't know where it went but it wasn't, wasn't quite as heavy and then the therapy experience was about discovering it and strengthening it, it and i think i've got some really powerful memories of um my person i was wrestling was doing that with me i think she said at one point um, my little vulnerable part so we talk about part of self like our little nikki is really lucky and um, because she's got like you as her healthy adult and i'll never forget <clears throat> how a Of that for me. I I think she said it was just the right point in my journey, just the right moment. Um, Mm -hmm. But it it was such a gift, and I think it's a real gift for me now as a clinician because I think about how that was delivered and I think carefully for everyone I work with about where's their healthy adult at, how do we need to build it. Um, It keeps me really humble as a clinician too because I sometimes you can step into over responsibility. Sometimes, uh like maybe when I look back at being more junior in my career, kind of getting a little bit sort of lost and maybe kind of ego-wise, maybe a little bit kind of built up by fixing and rescuing somebody, when actually it's, it's more, might be more complex and more, need more nuanced and thought, but actually if you can empower them, be alongside them, give them skills and fuel them up to fix themselves, you're giving your skills away, mm you're you're generating more and more of a healthy adult in them. that's really mm. what our job's about as, as clinicians certainly let like the a of schema therapy and um, mm. but yeah it's, it's always in my mind and um, when I'm delivering therapy and hopefully mm. I try and think about it it's always in my mind as a human as well. yeah it's so hope inducing
1: isn't it in so far as you know whenever any of us have dark times, it's really hard to be in touch with that healthy adult side. But sometimes being able to remember that it's in there, even though we may not feel completely in touch with it in that moment, can, you know, be enough to kind of, to get through really, to know that it's lingering there somewhere for us.
0: Yeah, I I really like the the idea of the, the healthy adult. And it's something that, you know, in my own therapy as well, that has been brought up quite a lot in terms of Um, I don't know whether this is something that's very common in eating disorders. Um, You guys can tell me, but sort of when we're thinking about parts, maybe the childlike part being a lot more dominant for for me anyway, um, Mm. and not really being able to connect to that healthy adult part. But I really liked what you were saying, Nikki, and it made me feel as though almost you were using your own healthy adult to connect with your clients and say okay like you know you're maybe displaying a, a you know you're in a child right now i've got my healthy adult and rather than me kind of just coming and protecting you as i would to a child i'm trying to help you to bring out that sort of um your healthy adult as well mm-hmm. um and i think like you say we've all got one it just mm-hmm. can often feel quite lost yeah. so how when you're doing the schema therapy is it, you know, we've spoken about the healthy adult. Mm-hmm. Are there other parts that you try and bring up as well? Or is it kind of mainly focusing on that healthy adult?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we it's a very kind of um, normalising model insofar as, you know, we all have similar versions um, of certain parts itself. Uh, and what we talk about in schema therapy is, as you're saying, Hannah, um, that we all have a kind of vulnerable part um, mm-hmm. that may be sort of younger in feel um, insofar as, you know, at the time of uh, kind of development, it may be housed many of our very early feelings. Um, mm-hmm. And it often sort of uh, contains feelings that, you know, we don't wear on our sleeves all the time you know there may be the feelings of sadness or uh, they may be linked to schema such as um, feeling quite unsafe or quite abandoned Um, but those really sort of core feeling states that sometimes go along with other you know bodily experiences images memories Um, but as you say we call that the the vulnerable child and um, really then sort of Beyond that, we all have um, what we think in terms of as coping modes, um, which are really just all of our very best attempts to, you know, manage what's coming our way, to manage the um, pain of our vulnerability um, and in you know, eating disorders, for example, we may have uh, a part of the self that needs to cut off from things, like a, we might call it a detached protector or the wall or something like that, which is the side of the self which tries to push down um, feelings um, that are painful. Um, we may also have another part of the self that we describe as quite overcompensatory, where you try to get on top of the difficult feelings. You try to be almost as opposite as some of the schemas mm. underlying it. So say, for example, you had um, a lingering sense or a worry about being good enough. You may overcompensate by being in quite a kind of perfectionistic mode um, mm. or quite some sort of energetic, full on busy type mode. Um, So those are two kind of core, core modes that we we think about um, in eating disorders. And there are there are many, many other modes, you know, another one um, is, we call it a kind of uh, sort of like a bit of a subjugating mode. And that's where we push our own feelings down, and we turn our attention to the needs of other people. Um, And often, you know, Individuals can be really acutely aware of the sensitivities of others and go very long ways to meeting them, but it can sometimes tip into being at the expense of one's own needs. Um, and then I guess the other part of the self, and we all have it, I'm certainly very aware of my own, is a form of inner critic that kind of mm-hmm. just can be on a continuum from jabbering away and saying, you know, quite critical things to, you know, some people endure critics, um, that are extremely harsh and condemning. Um, and, you know, obviously the emotional impact of being on the receiving end of that is extremely great. And that's what necessitates these coping modes, um, to act as a buffer. Um, and then we think of the healthy adults as being this sort of overarching, um, Uh, can think of it as like the conductor of the orchestra or the driver of the bus, but the part of ourselves that kind of organises. And like my healthy adult might say something like, you know, there you go again, Helen, criticising yourself, cut yourself some slack, give yourself a break. And that has an effect on my vulnerable child and soothes it and calms it. Um, So that's the sort of an example of mode interaction there, um, which is the sort of thing that we're encouraging. Um, but there are, you know, there are different varieties of modes, but those are, are, are some of the core ones, parts of the South for modes, as we call them.
0: So when you're because, I mean, those modes, um, I can relate to all of those um, and have seen, you know, I, I'm sure regardless of whether somebody has an eating disorder or not, um, mm. they might have those modes. But I, they feel definitely really prominent in in an eating mm-hmm. disorder. So. When you're, I think one thing that I found interesting, um, sort of from speaking to a range of different people about different therapeutic modes, is you mentioned it at the start, it's sort of going deep rather mm. than, mm. um, I think you know, traditionally we might look at eating disorder behaviors, but actually yeah. it feels like therapy itself within eating disorders is moving towards, a going underneath and, you know, really looking at, you know, why do I have these behaviors? What are they serving me And, and all of these different modes? Yeah. So when we're, when we're looking at working, well, when you're looking at working with, with your clients, is it about creating that, that healthy adult on a whole, um. And kind of looking at those different modes in terms of each mm-hmm. sort of behaviours, or do you kind of do it on a broad perspective to contribute to a healthier adult for them fully?
1: Yeah, so uh, I suppose there's, there's a few few stages in a way um, to how we would work, and you're you're absolutely mm-hmm. right that we all we all have modes. We could map any any one of us, and we would all sort of fit into a sort of slight variance of the same kind of things, really. Um, But I think that, um, you know, the first stage in many ways is to build awareness. So, and it's amazing, I think, how helpful it is to become aware of our mode relationships because modes aren't static. We don't sort of sit in a mode. We quite naturally flutter between them. And sometimes to become aware of that fluttering and particularly the mode sequences that may be linked, for example, to things that we might be working on, like uh, more eating disorder ways of coping can be really valuable. So the first step in a way is to um, connect with a therapist uh, and to build trust and together to support kind of awareness building really of Mm -hmm. core schema, where they emerged from, how they link to the unmet needs, Um, how they show themselves, both in terms of the modes um, and in terms of the kind of core pain underneath that in the vulnerable child. Um, And then what we tend to do is to work, I mean, the ultimate goal of schema therapy is to support individuals to get their primary needs met in adaptive ways. Um, and so a lot of the time what we're what we're trying to do is to work with parts of the self that are getting in the way of that. So, for example, um, we may be working to use um, kind of two chair type technique to get alongside the critic to, to to try to hear what it's got to say, to try to. Um, contain its messages, to try to, you know, sometimes we do really interesting imagery stuff where we shrink down the critic to try to reduce Mm -hmm. its impact. Um, We may also work directly with the coping mode. Um, We may um, do some work around trying to increase our familiarity with it. So one of the questions that I sometimes um, like to ask um, someone when they're in touch with a particular coping mode, let's just say an eating disorder coping mode, is to ask them, you know, what are you doing for so-and-so? Why, why do you need to be there right now? Um, and what would it be like if you work less hard? And if you enabled um, so-and-so's healthy adult to be more in the driving seat and to pick up some of the reins here? And so we kind of start a a really gentle dialogue, really, between the different sides of the self. Um, And all the time, the healthy adults watching and the healthy adults being involved in this process. And it's hopefully developing a kind of really healthy meta-awareness of both what the mode relationships are um, and, you know, to start to tune in a little bit more, to be less driven by the coping modes and to tune in a little bit more to the needs underneath, the ones that are housed in that more vulnerable side of the self.
2: I guess I could give a bit of an example of how like, modes can get in the way, in a way. And the reason mm-hmm. like, I lent into schema and I think I remember like being, feeling very vulnerable about, you know, what therapy should I do, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, I shouldn't even be in this position, I should have psychologised myself out of this, like, what was going on was I had an incredible critic, incredible, and, um, he was, you know, and so a kind of traditional sort of pen and paper or cognitive um, type way in for me just was going to kind of fall down, like, so, so that level of, of mode and there wasn't my healthy adult, wasn't n- needed a bit of moral support basically, and um, so there was no way that I was going to be able to make use of that stuff. And um, so, I think what's nice about schema is when you build that kind of awareness, it doesn't mean that you can't down the line use some of the other kinds of strategies and techniques. So, so actually, sometimes when you deliver schema therapy, you do sort of swing in cognitive and behavioral idea you, you can and, you, and, you, and you, as long as it's sort of met by a healthy adult you're, you're kind of landing it at the right point in the journey but i think it mainly reflects a lot where um you know if you've got a critic or if someone also is so if you think about these different taping modes sometimes people have more like an intellectualized type type place and i'm not good at all the names of what you call it but but a kind of place that keeps <laughs> you sort of safe and from feeling because you're being so bright and brainy and um, but it it kind of it doesn't allow you to connect so you're you know with with your heart and your soul it's quite protective so sometimes mm. you can be delivering therapy like a cdp type therapy or a kind of uh, you know more sort of standard um therapy and feel as a clinician like you're ticking the boxes and the person can be sort of either in an intellectualized mode or maybe a pleaser mode where, where they're nodding and ticking the boxes but afterwards you don't have a sense of did that really touch that person like did it really hit their sort of heart and soul like are we is it are they really is this really coming alive for them Mm -hmm. and schema has more more scope more creativity more more space i think for you to clinically or collaboratively check out but things Mm -hmm. are really landing in a way that's helpful um Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, really experiencing therapy at a point where I really needed it as well, where I was really depleted. So I wasn't in a, a kind of resource, you know, I'm going to do therapy as a bit of a professional development, but it was it was kind of a point in time where it it had, yeah, it was important for me. I think the lessons in that are around um, how valuable the idea of marriage are and understanding mm-hmm. kind of critic and... and coping ways. and um, I think the other benefit of schema like like you said Hannah there, there is the ability to go deep but there's there's the ability to go where you need to go as well I think mm. it, doesn't, it doesn't there's still a framework there mm. so if deep isn't relevant to the person, you can lighten it and move into more sort of practical stuff and um, and um and I think for me there was Maybe I've always felt a little bit like a misfit in clinical psychology because I think there are people who do do therapy and and it works. Different pe- different things work for different people. But I've always been quite a mm. feeler, quite sensitive, quite um I did A level art, so quite um creative. <laughs> and um, with schema, you have the space to connect in quite creative ways and bring. Mm modes are life I think I always like role play probably a bit more than like <laughs> the actual <laughs> so you can bring in drama you can um you know you can begin to understand the emotional sort of state um in a way that felt so much more intuitive to me so and then mm. since growing up and being older reflecting on it I'm like well actually you know when we're little and we learn to feel we don't start by putting words on feelings and being really cognitive. Mm. We start with playing and mm-hmm. drawing and painting and, and listening to music and stuff, and then the words come later. So why would it not be the same that when any of us are at almost depleted and you know, everything feels a bit jumbled and you know everything sort of for me was like a messy digital on the floor and I wasn't quite sure where all the pieces were going to go and what the order was but actually kind of having more of a free space where someone just got alongside and allowed that and then found gentle ways to be with you and help you make sense of that emotional sort of position Mm. to build back towards something conscious, find more words that that kind of work. Like that order of things Mm. really was much more of a gentle way and much less critical.
1: Mm. Yeah. And it's making me think as well about, you know, the concept of unmet needs as well, which underlies the whole model is that a lot of the unmet needs that we focus on you know, although relevant, we miss others, such as the need for play, as you're saying, you know, the need for moments of joy, the need for flexibility and creativity. And all of those are naturally woven into the ways in which we, um, you know, we, we are within a schema therapy relationship. It is, you know, so far from a kind of paint, paper, pencil type exercise. And like Nikki says, you know, cognitive behavioral ways of working can also be playful and valuable and get interwoven Um, but the kind of you know the the energy if you like in the schema therapy is very much about you know how to, to what degree are we connecting with the emotion and the unmet needs underneath that and if we know we're moving in that direction we we know we're kind of we're kind of where we should be really
0: I, I just was just thinking when, because um, one of my questions that I had for you was like, what's the difference maybe between schema therapy and CBT? Mm. And I think you laid it out so nicely in terms of, okay, I don't want to make, I don't want this to make it sound like I'm like pooing on CBT because I know that for some people it works really, really well. For me, didn't. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work for other people. But mm. I agree with you in that it felt for me like a tick box exercise. And I think I was very good at being, um, it's gonna sound bad, but because I've done a master's in eating disorders and worked in eating disorders, I kind of knew what I needed to say to kind of get through it. And that meant for me that I was, you know, I'm also the kind of person I'm very, very well behaved. So if you tell me to do something, I will do it. Mm. Um, and so you'd have, you know, your homework that you'd go home each week and do, and I'd do it, but we'd never sort of get underneath of like, okay, well, why can't you do this off your own back? Like, you know, when, when you then need to go and flourish and do your own thing, why can't you? Um, whereas the more emotion focused therapy that I've done, um, and like you said, with sort of the more expressive stuff and the more creative stuff. I also did A-level art. So I don't know whether that all adds up together or not. Um, but it, it made me feel like I actually had to connect to myself. Um, Mm. and it's really funny that you spoke about chair work actually, because I literally did that this morning and Mm. it initially I was like, this is horrific. I hate (laughs) drama. I don't want to do this. This is awful, but it got so deep. Um, Mm. and it got me thinking about you know, the role of my eating disorder in a way that I've never really mm-hmm. thought about before. Um, And once you start to have those conversations and that back and forth, you almost, I know it made me realize what maybe I'm missing in, in like, you know, Hannah, what Hannah is missing in herself and what she's yeah. leaning into the eating disorder for, Um, which, you know, like I said, CBT can work, but I never felt that from CBT, I felt like it was very rigid. And for me, with somebody with such a rigid mindset and a rigid eating disorder, I really needed to be creative and express myself in a way that like I've never been able to do before because I've had the, the boundaries of the eating disorder.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well with eating disorders, isn't it, how sometimes that we can get so bound up in talking about the behaviors and talking about it at a, at a sort of symptom level. But there, again, what schema therapy is trying to do is to get underneath that, and um, you know, behaviours are understood as being one aspect of a coping mode. Um, but you know, when we use chair work as well, we're not talking about those symptoms. We're not talking about the mode. We're talking from that perspective, and I think that shift in perspective is so powerful because it means that we bring all of us on board in that conversation. We think about the emotional impact that being in that place has the behavioral impact. Um, And we can invite other parts of the self, such as the more vulnerable self, to tell us what is it like being underneath all of that coping mode? You know, what what, what does it feel like? What what do you miss out on? So there's something so sort of rich and dynamic, I think, about keeping parts selves alive, inviting parts of the self that maybe don't get much airtime because they're constantly being squashed down by, you know, an eating disorder coping mode, for example. Uh, And it's amazing what Can come when you invite a part of the self that's pretty neglected actually to to have more space and to have more airtime and to dare to connect on many levels so as nikki's saying not just verbally it can be the body can tell us a lot about what a part of the self may actually be experiencing and so too can images so it's you know it's the there's a you know a a richness for enabling people to describe things in ways that are you know in keeping with the developmental age of the mode that they're speaking from but also we're all different aren't we we all have different kind of ways of expressing things and I think it's it's a lovely model for being able to really make the most of that those opportunities I think
0: yeah I think something else that I really like that I'm, I'm I mean you've not said explicitly but And tell me if I'm wrong I might be making an assumption but it's almost I think the thing I like is that you know eating disorders can be so black and white in that like this is good this is bad Mm. and initially I think when you come into therapy you think eating disorder bad you know Mm. real me good um and actually it, it feels as almost as though through schema therapy you sort of uncover all those different modes and maybe right now your pie chart is like full-on eating disorder with like a tiny little bit of these other modes and naturally it doesn't have to be necessarily that the eating disorder has to completely go it might just be that you reframe it into you know that's like a protected mode or, or something and then you can uncover as to okay why do we feel like we need so much protection and actually can we bring in these other parts of ourself um yeah. that are like you said currently not really getting much airtime but could be really helpful because i found that like not explicitly the eating disorder, but sort of the characteristics and maybe parts of me that mean that the eating disorder exists, Mm -hmm. they're actually not the worst thing in the world. You know, I'm a very determined person. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm quite perfectionistic. I just like things to be a certain way. I'm, I'm very driven. And actually, I don't want to get rid of those parts of me. I want to keep them, Mm. but I just maybe don't want them to be quite as loud. And then those other parts of me to be quite so suppressed.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. 100% 100% Hannah, I think it's, it's some of the modes that are linked to eating disorder ways of being that are the very modes that have the energy that get people well in mm. the end. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, 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 sort of eating disorder ways of being, you know, I, I sort of, when you, you sort of track a mode developmentally, so you look at the time at which it developed, you look at what was going on at that mm. time and why it needed to, come online, why it needed to be there. You know, it's always really evident that they're really adaptive at the time of mm. or, or that, that, that they came into into action um, and that they're people's very best attempts to manage things mm. and it's mm. really important to understand that frame and that kind of the evolution of the coping mode in a sense um, and then there can be almost like a you know f- from the perspective of, of a healthy adult a kind of reconsideration really of which bits of this very powerful energetic driven mode do I want to really Prize as being a valuable part of me, and which bit has enough downsides that actually mm-hmm. I might want to to leave or find other ways of 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 being of being. Um, so, you know, a hundred percent. I think the whole concept of a coping mode, and we, you know, the idea that we are all most of the time in coping modes. You know, this is what we do. We don't. Mm walk around with our core pain that's too much for anyone um but sometimes you know our coping modes can benefit from a little bit of tweaking here and there mm. um so it, it very much moves away from this sort of you know absolutely right that sort of dichotomy of good and bad is is, is really really unhelpful not relevant really
0: i i want to ask there because you said about tweaking certain modes mm. so is it possible to create a completely new mode? Or do you kind of have to stick with those modes that you kind of gained during that developmental period, and then maybe embrace them, suppress them? Or can you create completely new ones?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, So I think, because of the way in which, you know, like I say, this is just a general construction of a self, it's not a sort of, it's not, it's not a they're not pathological, you know, we're not, we're not, it's not something to be got rid of is that I think most of the time we are, it is more of a tweaking. I sometimes Mm -hmm. um, talk about the concepts of sort of dialing down some modes. So, you know, a perfectionist mode being an example of that where, you know, to, to be, to be sort of, you know, driven in the world and to like things to be a certain way, you know, if that's dialed up to 100%, that has a number of downsides. If it's dialed down to 70% and there's possible to have a conversation about what that might look like, then that frees things up. And I sometimes sort of talk about what we're trying to do is just get a little bit of wiggle room from those coping modes because ultimately the ultimate goal is for the healthy adult to be able to hear The needs of the vulnerable child. What do you need in that moment? And the difficulty is, is that if coping modes are turned up on full throttle, you can't hear what your vulnerable child is saying. Because you're too busy sort of, um, you know, in a people pleaser mode, say, or too busy in an intellectualizer mode that you've forgotten you're actually exhausted, mm-hmm. that you want a break. Or you've forgotten that actually, you know, it was tough, tough in the morning and you felt actually quite lonely at home. And it's that it's that slightly dialing down so that there can be that greater connection with the unmet need and the emotional stuff that's underneath that. So I think it is more about tweaking, but it's not to say that, you know, with the concept of the healthy adult, it could be, you know, it can be more or less available to us. So, you know, I've had to work quite hard over the years to develop a a healthy adult that has a compassionate tone to it you know, that Mm -hmm. can speak um, gently and can guide me away from a critic, for example. Um, Other healthy adults need to learn how to self-regulate, how to, um, you know, sort of take breaks, how to set different priorities. So there can be some learning that goes on, if you like, or some skills building. Um, But ultimately, I think, you know, it's quietening that critic, which gives people a hard time, dialing down the reliance on coping modes so that there's greater connection between the, the sort of core needs that we all have underneath and our emotional self and, and getting them met in healthy ways in the world.
2: I was going to say, I, I kind of think about, so although we talk about no pen and paper, I've, I've got this, I've still got my my mode map and. It's, um, but I, I, kind of also think about it in terms of almost like when you first come in, um, or when I first sort of came in. Like my, my critic was really big, like, and had you know parts, bits, parts to it, um, and then my coping modes were also kind of quite dominant, and my healthy adult needed to be grown, visually, <laughs> and the coping modes needed a bit of shrinking and sort of almost space. So, so all of those and the critic needed to back back right up right now <laughs> not, not, just think back. um so they're kind of like it's also, it's the quieting it's, it's how you can tap into all the senses it's, it's visually feeling that that, that stuff is, is a bit more manageable but bit like and that there is breathing space to reach your vulnerable um so then the vulnerable part might well be just completely sort of suffocated behind the coping mode Taking didn't mean to suffocate it, but because they've just been building up to try and cope with this massive critic over here. But it still happens, and so the healthy adult can't reach the vulnerable child. So I guess the therapy is also about. I almost feel like bringing some breathing holes in, or like allowing Mm. to reach its hand down and hold hold the vulnerable child up, and then get get more and more. Like Helen said, wiggle room space.
0: I wanted to ask because I think. Something that's very prominent for me, and I I don't know whether other people will be able to relate to this, but it almost feels like in society, those sort of—I don't want to say negative parts, because you know we've said we're not going to have that like dichotomous thinking—but the maybe more perfectionistic, the that more critical voice, they often feel quite glorified in the sense that if we think about you know kind of everyday life at the moment it's it's Mm. new year's resolution season and you know people are very critical of like I have to have this new year's resolution like I've got to better myself but it never feels as though I don't know I've never heard well I do more so nowadays but it seems less common to be like my new year's resolution is to be more compassionate for myself or Mm. to be more kind to myself. It's always kind of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go on this diet or like, I'm going to start doing this much exercise. And, um, basically what I'm trying to say is how did it feel to sort of move yourself from maybe quite a critical environment to actually developing more compassion and kindness for yourself? Because we do all talk about You know in society like self-care and all of this but without making this sound horrible in my eye and maybe this is just my perspective but it's almost seen as weaker um and i think in society it's seen as almost a a weaker personality trait than like the strong-willed like you know pushing through and keeping going and i think that's what holds me back sometimes from allowing myself to be in those modes it's because they're not seen as maybe as powerful or you know kind of admired in society
2: and i think one thing that i did in therapy or thought thought about in therapy was and i don't know if it quite connects with this but maybe we can make it somehow but um the idea of like live critics as well so you have an internal Mm -hmm. critic um and the internal critic might well have started when you were quite little so it could be messages you receive from parents or like things they were modeling in front of you. So they might have been incredibly critical mm. of themselves. And you picked that up as, okay, that's, that's how it's meant to be. That's what you are meant to do. Or, you know, there could have been really difficult experiences directly. Um, but I think also we have to navigate a quite a continued society. I think from, you know, just from my, in, in terms of put my clinician head on, like the kind of messages that get put out there about, and social media all of that stuff it's it's, it's quite hardcore to navigate all of that stuff and and to be able to work out where those messages are coming from, whether they're helpful or harmful, like they're packaged as healthy and helpful but they're often kind of delivered in a very different way and received in a very different way if they come through a a, a critic filter Um, so I learned I had to learn about um when um live critics were also reinforcing or, or live critical like critic inducing environments were also sort of making it very hard to ignore mm-hmm. my critics and um, so i think that almost like the systemic part of things came in there for me if that makes sense mm-hmm. um and that's where i think i needed my healthy adult to be quite hardcore and, and grow quite strong and i needed my clinician my 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 therapist to model healthy adults with me, join me, help me get really strong to make sense of all of that noise, because there wasn't just a, an internal critic, there was other stuff to, to navigate. And I think, yeah, so sometimes people need a lot more strength. So I've noticed that for people, so just translating that right into more of a, an eating disorder related um, scenario, we have environments that are more hard, you know, more difficult to navigate. So if you're an actress or, or an actor, um, if you're a model, if you're a pop star, like it's going to be much harder to ignore some of that pressure. Like that pressure is going to be really strong. So they're going to need incredible strength to sort of find their own ways of sticking two fingers up to that, or you know, just, just to kind of think, of actually, what's the truth for me? What's what's right for me? How am I going to do this? And um, yeah, so I, I don't know mm-hmm. if I answered what where you were going with it, Hannah. But I, I, it takes thought to sort of catch that and have conversations about that, yeah. as, as, and over the time and over the therapy mm-hmm. to understand how that's landing, where that's coming from, like what mode also. So, like maybe in the early stages, it is really hard because it's just the critic kind of. Um, taking that information and amplifying it and mm. um, mm. so it's kind of just noting that to start with but then yeah in time building ways but I, yeah I, I I found it really hard to build up compassion I tell you I, I Renee Brown is someone I'm absolutely obsessed with now <laughs> and um I think I did definitely remember having one phase of treatment where I just my cricket was really like I just couldn't tune it down I couldn't find a way to not hear it um and so I just had one of her books I think I just read it gently to <laughs> myself I used to open mm-hmm. at a random point I'm like that was the best I could do at that point in time to try not to mm. but it's um yeah I don't know You're, you know it, it, it's a hard process to sort of work out the mode work out what you need work out how to mm. build your own health built. so kind of having a bit of a helping hand in that is thoroughly mm. recommended
1: yeah. The other thing I was just going to add a bit about critics is, and I think it can be really relevant in eating disorders, is is that, you know, I think sometimes we think of the critic as a bit of a unitary thing, you know, that's critical. And all it really is, is a kind of, a sort of an introductory, it's an internalisation either of, um, you know, societal messages, um, It can be cultural norms, but also, you know, in a very basic form, it's a kind of superego, isn't it? It's trying to keep us in check. And it's on it's on a continuum through, you know, getting us up in the morning through to being extremely attacking, annihilatory. But it's also not always critical. And I think some uh, internal voices are quite hard to capture the essence of. And it's quite important to do so because it's it it, it, they can be so automatic and sort of get under the skin somehow that they can be hard to hear. So you can also have an internal dialogue that's really guilt-inducing, you know, really? Compassion? Um, <laughs> do, do you really think that you deserve that? You know, shouldn't you be working harder? That kind of thing. Or just subtly invalidating, you know, do, is, is that the case? You know, do you really feel that? we mm. got that right? Um Maybe you need to think again on that one. So, mm. you know, there's sort of different, different, degrees of and different content types of these internal dialogues and they have quite different origins and they have quite different effects so you know recognizing when a voice is invalidating sometimes it's hard to capture because it's more about tone than about content but actually the effect it has is that sometimes people say well i don't have a critic but it's like no but you do have the side of yourself that's basically second guessing everything you're thinking or feeling and making you feel really doubtful and that is a tough that's tough to be on the receiving end of um so, yeah. you know, and how we would work with a critic of a different variety is slightly different. So, you know, yeah, I just think there's something about trying to really listen really carefully to that inner voice and, and to try to to get a sense of it together. Mm-hmm. Because remember, the individual is so used to hearing it, it can just feel automatic.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's a really interesting point in almost in terms of like the normalization of it all you Mm. know if that's been your norm and your go to then for somebody to say like oh let's explore your inner critic you might be like i don't have one like that's you know and and it's only going on in your head so i think yeah that is quite a difficult concept in terms of you know like you you just said about doubt there like Mm. i don't think that i would have thought that me doubting myself was my inner critic but actually you know That's it is because it's you know Mm. are you you sure about that like and I think that's one thing I've found recently is so hard in recovery is that kind of that doubt you know I think guilt for me always felt like quite an obvious one because it's guilting Mm. me it's making me feel guilty about things but but doubt like oh but are you hungry right now and like are you sure you need that and I that's one thing that's been really prominent for me is trying to determine what's like a pro recovery decision and what's a a anti-recovery decision I guess you could call Mm. it um and like as an example this weekend I was going to see a friend uh and going away for the whole weekend and I literally had to sit on the floor of my bedroom and just like weigh up what was going on because I was like part of me was saying you know if you go then you might not kind of engage in your meal plan as much because you're out of your comfort zone and that will feel scary. So you should definitely stay home. But then Mm -hmm. the other part was like, but no, you should go because you want to see your friend and that will be really good for you to connect. And I was like, yeah, but now you're withdrawing if you don't go. And it was, it was Mm -hmm. so like messy. Um, And I think that's when it can get really overwhelming when you've got all of those different voices going Mm -hmm. on and you actually have to spend so much time thinking, you know what's actually honest right now and what's coming Mm. from a good place or a bad place and sometimes you can't even answer that you just kind of have to go with your gut as to be like yeah this is what I'm going to go with as to what I think is going to be the
1: best Mm. decision that's such a lovely summary of listening to the more sort of um, needs-based side of us is Mm. all that noise all the decisions all the toing and froing what does my gut say uh, mm-hmm. that's a really lovely example of cutting through the coping modes and listening to the core cool stuff.
0: Yeah. Um and I wanted to ask you also about your schema therapy school. Mm-hmm. Um because, you know, there I'm sure people listening to this may be very interested in finding out more. So what sort of was the idea behind that? Why did you develop it and and what's the sort of goal behind the school?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I run um, Schema Therapy School with Yanis uh, Pridis, who's a, um, a senior uh, counselling psychologist. And we've both been really passionate about, we're, you know, we're Schema Therapists. That's what we do every day. Um, we're also sort of supervisors. Um, and we've always loved training. Um, and I think our wish really was to train others, is to be involved in, building a community, really, which is what um, Schema Therapy School has become, build a little community of people who have a shared passion um, and to really make our training sort of in keeping with the model, that it's experiential, it's lively. We bring ourselves to it. It's not intellectual exercise. We put ourselves on the line. Um, And as a result of that, you know, it generally feels like a privilege to me, sort of other therapists to connect quite deeply for people to talk about their own stuff, their own experiences, their own therapy journeys, as well as, you know, their own passion for the clinical work. You know, it's definitely not a training for the faint-hearted kind of thing. You know, there's a, there's a real expectation of throwing yourself in, but, you know, we've, we've, you know, really thoroughly enjoy um, offering our training. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, I think we feel like we're building a little community of people interested in learning about schema therapy full in terms of the full accreditation training, but also people who, you know, want to learn a little bit more about, you know, a specific angle of schema therapy, like, you know, like schema therapy and eating disorders or schema therapy and trauma or, you know, whatever it is um so yeah we've been going for quite a few years now um and you know really really enjoying the journey of it
0: yeah and nikki you mentioned it kind of really it sounds like it contributed to your kind of role as a clinician overall like maybe not just when you're giving schema therapy but in in general um like do you feel like it's enhanced you as a clinician to be able to kind of provide more to your clients um
2: Oh, I think well so I after so I've done I've done training with Helen the as well, so I like I would massively recommend it as well <laughs> um, but I I yeah I think it it's for a depth um by both being on the receiving end so I suppose in terms of my I I had therapy before I then started doing training in it as well mm-hmm. so um I kind of yeah that was that was the way it went but um so I think both both have informed my practice um, mm-hmm. and um it's hard to say isn't it like I, 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 maybe like growing as a as a clinician over time as well you get you get wiser um mm-hmm. and I think there are you know great clinicians out there who haven't had to sort of navigate more tricky moments in their life because maybe they haven't had like you know we're all human aren't we we have like a stacking of life events and sometimes those life events hit us at a point in time where we just don't have the resources we might be more defeated Mm -hmm. at that point we just need a bit more of a helping hand and so i i guess it doesn't necessarily mean that you know if you haven't been through that kind of thing that you, you don't have stuff to bring but i do know that yeah like there's been something very important for me um, about being on the receiving end. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it kind of been a springboard into kind of knowing more about it. It's touching my heart and soul, kind of, but being able to think about how to touch other people's hearts mm-hmm. and make, make, really making sure therapy resonates with people. I think, I think that's what it's done for me now. It's whether I'm doing schema therapy and more formally or delivering you know treatment that's relevant you know in another way for, for the person I'm working with I'm always mindful of you know, how's this landing and you know, is this the right fit for them right now how do we make it work I think I often ask people at the end of session about kind of what's really resonated what you're going to test away and not in a homework way but like how are we going to make this come alive mm-hmm. for you between now and next week yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, like I was kind of saying about the CBT in that it works for some people, maybe not for others. Um, I think it's very similar with when clinicians have been on their own journey, whether that is, you know, a therapy journey specifically or, or whatever, you know, we've all had ups and downs in life, but I completely agree with you in that. I think, you know, whether it's going through an eating disorder or going through therapy, it just gives that other element of sort of understanding um and you know i've found when i have been working with therapists that it's yeah it's it's just kind of helped them to understand how i'm feeling um but also i'm not i I don't want to sit here and say that you know i'd never want to work with a therapist that hadn't gone through their own therapy or whatever i just think it it's that i think it's that self-development piece isn't it and whether that's you know going to loads of cb and CPD trainings or having therapy yourself you know and you all have to have supervision so that's kind of a a self-reflective thing anyway um I think those developing those sort of skills really allows you to then give back to to the people that that you're working with
1: um yeah well it's definitely part of our ethos at Schema Therapy (laughs) School that we really sort of we obviously, it's, it's from no benefit to enforce it, but we sort of strongly encourage that therapists, mm. you know, launch into their own therapy for all the reasons you said, Hannah. You know, this, yeah, it's an, it's, it's an experiential person based therapy, and it's really hard to do that without having you know put, put yourself into it as well. Um, mm. yeah, so yeah, support that idea entirely. It's really nice to sort
2: of say that, Lau, because I think you can feel quite vulnerable as a clinician when, um, mm. when you do need to lean into it. Kind of um, therapy and i think we don't talk enough about the strengths that come out of it um, mm-hmm. and the growth that comes out of it for people um, and i think i don't know whether that's about my own criticism as well like the kind of the shame of it really and and mm-hmm. but kind of reclaiming that and saying well you know it, there's so much learning um, mm-hmm. and and so much that i that i have powerfully taken away from that experience that has propelled me forward um as a human and as a clinician yeah yeah being more
0: proud yeah of that. I, I mean, proud of that. yeah and i think that is you know, you've like knocked the nail on the head there in terms of like being proud of that self-development and that therapy because i always see it as that's why i'm so open on full of beans about you know my own eating disorder experience if i can kind of come on here i go on and write a post about my eating disorder experience. Somebody that might think, Ooh, an eating disorder, you know, that's maybe something to be ashamed of, or there's a lot of stigmas attached to it, or, you know, it's, it's something that we have to keep hush hush. And then they see me kind of, you know, sharing, I have an eating disorder and, and this is what's going on for me right now. I always think I saw somebody put the other day on Instagram. It's like, I, I'm recovering loudly so that somebody else doesn't have to suffer silently. What's that? And I, it, I loved it so much Mm. because I was like, that's so true. And I've had so many people say to me, like, you know, is it actually positive for your recovery for you to do this? And I actually think it's really positive for me. Mm. Um, But also it's, I'm hopeful that it's helping so many others as well by me sort of sharing my experience and then being like, Oh, maybe there isn't something to be ashamed of. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. Um, I have enjoyed that so much. I think that, it really resonates with the work that I'm actually doing currently with myself. So it was really cool mm-hmm. to kind of talk to you about that. Um, I guess if people do want to learn more about schema therapy um, and about the work that you both do, where can they find you both?
1: Um, they could certainly contact us at the schema therapy school. So we have mm-hmm. a website. It's just uk. We are there our contact mm-hmm. details are there. Um, yeah and we can we can sort of connect connect up definitely via there so yeah it'd be lovely if people want to get in touch
0: i'll put that all in the show notes for people so that they don't have to scribble it down with their pen and paper now lovely. um but yeah thank you both so much it's been really lovely to chat to it's you it's been a
1: pleasure thank you hannah for yeah, having us
0: absolute pleasure. yeah thank you <laughs> if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust.